at this time, the children can head out to Children's Church. I believe you guys are doing practice. I'm, I'm going to tell you, I was here yesterday with the kids, and they're doing a fantastic job uh, with their dress-up and performance and singing. Uh, you, you do not want to uh, miss next Sunday when we have our one service at 10 o'clock, uh, where the kids are going to be doing their... Uh, Christmas program then. If you can't make it next week, come on Wednesday night. We're going to be doing it then as well. Uh, but we just want to invite you to be a part of that. It's going to be, they're doing an amazing job. So two weeks ago, uh, before the Thanksgiving, before we left for Thanksgiving to go uh, to our family, uh, we finished taking a look at uh, the harvest and what it means uh, to have the, the harvest. We took, Specifically, the last one, we looked at the three harvest festivals that are of the seven festivals that the Jews are supposed to celebrate. We talked about how the, uh, the Feast of the First Fruits, which was the bringing into the barley, was uh, when Christ was taken uh, into heaven, and we're told that he was the first fruits uh, offered to God. Then we talked about uh, how just 50 days later was the second feast, and uh, the second harvest feast, which was Pentecost, and that was the bringing in of the wheat and what happened on Pentecost, except that mankind, the Holy Spirit, fell upon them, and then we began a harvest at that time, and we are in that second harvest. The third one being uh, the final one, which is the Feast of Ingathering, which is when everything is finally done and everything's brought into the into the household, and there is a massive celebration. We looked in Revelation at that uh, that harvest, which is to come at the end of time. So we ended with that. Now we're heading into the Christmas season. And I actually want to kind of connect those two things, the harvest with Christmas, uh, because the harvest seems like it's the end of things. And the, you know, Christmas seems to be about the beginning of things, the birth of things. So there we've got the birth of Jesus, uh, the harvest, the end of all mankind. We've got the beginning, we've got the end. And so to tie it together, we've got Revelation chapter 22, verse 13, where Jesus says, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. So what we find, one of the principles that we connect with in Christianity is the fact that Christ is the beginning of all things. He is the end of all things. We are told in John chapter 1 that it is in him, through him, and by him, and for him that all things were made that have been made. Nothing that has been made was made without him. Uh, we are told that he is the one, uh, when he came to the earth, he was the, the, the first uh, who was going to be uh, born of the Spirit. He is born, he actually ends, so we've got a beginning and ending. Uh, he ends the old law, begins the new law, the New Testament as we have it. And so uh, he is born and begins a new era. Uh, we, we also know that at the end he's going to come and he is going to end this common era, this uh, time of Christianity uh, at the judgment. So we see that he is the beginning and the end. So I find it personally interesting that we celebrate the harvest, kind of the end of the year, in uh, the, the end of the seasons in November, and then we have another month, and in this other month, we celebrate Christmas. We celebrate the uh, birth of Jesus, and it just seems kind of an odd time, because to be honest, we picked the time. We don't know when Jesus was born. Uh, we picked the time that we were going to celebrate, and and this the end of the year, I mean, almost as close to the end of the year as possible, where there's no more time in the year left, that's when we choose to honor and remember that uh, Jesus came and made, made all things new. It would almost seem to make more sense for us to celebrate Christmas I, I, at the beginning of the year, wouldn't it? That at the beginning of the year, then do it then, because then we are remembering that Christ came and, and that 
all things were made new, uh, that through him we have salvation and a new life, all that. It would seem to make sense. Well, that's, that's fine. But I think that there's a reason. Whether man intended it or not, I think that there is a reason that Christmas is at the very end of the year as we are closing everything out. And that is because of what Christmas actually began as. Go in your Bibles and look. Find me anywhere where Jesus says, remember my birth. It's not there. Go into the scriptures and find where Jesus uh, 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 says, celebrate my birth. Uh, celebrate my coming into the world. It isn't anywhere. The, inst- the only things that we are told to remember, that we are told to celebrate, that we are told to honor as Christians is his death, his burial, and his resurrection. And so every week we gather together, and here we are. We've got the body and the blood, which we just partook of. We do that every week because, as Paul says, uh, by doing so, we proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. Those are the things that Jesus wanted us to remember. So why is it, one, that we celebrate Christmas? Why at the end of the year? What's this all about? We've lost part of the original meaning of why Christians celebrated his coming. And it wasn't to get together and to oogle over the little baby Jesus and how cute he was and how non-threatening he was. To be honest, most of us would probably rather have a baby Jesus because then he does what we want We want him to instead of him telling us what we're supposed to do. The reason Christians began to celebrate Christmas, his first coming, was because the lessons of the first coming teach us about our future. They teach us about our future. You see, when we do the Christmas story, what do we do? We tell stories of how there are signs in the sky. We tell stories of how the world was in anticipation. They felt it. They felt like the time was right. We tell stories of how, of how though, though they were looking for it, most people were absolutely unprepared. We tell stories of how... Uh, wise men traveled from afar with gifts to bring a king, and then they come across this little baby, and he's not in—he's he, not in a castle. He isn't even wealthy. He's literally in a cave where they stored animals. They were, he, so we tell stories of how it, it, Christ came in a way that it, it wasn't even expected. He didn't meet their expectations, and then we also tell stories of how, uh, uh, like. There were people who were hostile to his birth, right? So we've got Herod who's threatened. His power is threatened. He's the king of Israel, and he hears that there's a king that's been born. And so he goes and has all of the young men, uh, uh, two and under, executed so that his power isn't threatened. He decides when he hears, when he hears that Christ has come, the Messiah has come, he decides, I'm going to war. So we tell all, all of these stories. We tell all of these stories every year. Because the point of the Christmas story is to remind us he came once and this was the situation. He's coming again and it's the same situation again. 
it's going to look nearly identical. The situation into which he comes is going to be the same. The point of celebrating Christmas was to tell the stories, to remember how the people missed him, those who were prepared, and to encourage ourselves and remind ourselves that there is a second coming that we are either prepared for or we are not prepared for. Revelation chapter 1 verse 8, almost echoing the same words we just read, Jesus said, I am the Alpha and the Omega, says the Lord God, who was, or who is, who was, and who is to come, the Almighty. So Revelation, we have this, we have Jesus saying over and over, I'm the beginning and the end. I came once, I'm coming again. I began the Christian era, I am ending the Christian era. I began the second law, I am ending the second law. I created this creation, I am destroying it. I am the beginning and the end. So isn't it kind of interesting? And that, that we, we, we miss all of this. So, so the beginning of the New Testament begins with the story of Christmas. It begins with the story of Christ coming in the flesh. I don't mean to spoil the ending for you, but the New Testament also ends in a coming. It begins with him coming to earth. The New Testament ends with him coming to earth. I believe that is why we celebrate Christmas at the end of the year. Because we are not telling the stories of things that happened. We are talking and reminding ourselves that in the end, he's coming again. That in the end, we are told, people will be aware. There will be signs in the heavens. We're told, Jesus says that in the end. Look up to the heavens, you'll see the signs. The people will be in anticipation. They will be aware that he's coming. There will be a, a sense that it is near. There will be many people, even though they know he's coming, who will not be prepared. They won't be ready. They're going to be busy about their own life, not have room for him. They're not even going to pay attention to the fact that it happens. And there's going to be those who decide, just like Herod did, uh-uh, I don't need a king. And Revelation tells us they will go gather together and they will make war against God and against his angels. His second coming is a lot like the first coming. Which is why I think we're celebrating this at the end of the year. So there was a story I read. Um, there was a quiet town back in the 1800s. A mother and a father, they brought their child into town. They had to get supplies uh, for the family farm for the week. They told their child, they knew he would obey. They said, you're going to stay in the wagon while we go into the store and we pick up the supplies we need. And so they went in and the boy sat obediently inside uh, the carriage. While they're gone, something went by and spooked the horse. And the horse reared up and took off, just started flying down. The boy, the boy holds on for dear life. He doesn't jump out. Mom and dad told him to stay in it. And the horse is running crazy. They're not balanced. They don't have shocks or struts. I mean, this thing's going nuts, bouncing all over the place. The kid is screaming. There's a young man who looks up, sees this, jumps up on his horse, and he starts riding out after this carriage. As he reaches up, he gets up, almost like you see in the movies, he jumps from his horse onto the carriage, he grabs a hold of the reins, slows the horses down, gets off, and then calms them down so that they don't run off again. He hops up into the carriage, and he looks at the boy in the eyes, and he, he says, are you okay? And the boy, the boy just smiles. 
here this guy is, risked his life to, to save him when his whole world was careening out of control. Here is this Savior that comes along. Well, as the story goes, this same boy, as he grew up, became a, uh, a rather ruthless, um, uh, cruel kind of character who had uh, no integrity, uh, vile, a criminal. He went through and was finally caught, uh, had murdered someone, was brought in, arrested. So the bailiff goes and they, they bring him, they haul him from the, from the county jail, they bring him into the courthouse. Uh, he's getting pulled in, people are looking, I mean, it's, it's kind of a shocking situation. They bring him up, the young man looks up, and lo and behold, sitting in the judge's seat is a 20-year-aged version of that. It's that young man, but 20 years older, that young man who had saved him who had been so kind to him, so gentle and so merciful with him. And so he smiles to himself thinking, I can appeal to this guy. He is a merciful, loving person. So when the time comes for him to make his own defense, he stands up and, and, and he pleads with the judge for mercy, for, for grace. He pleads for the judge to remember that he risked his life to save him. And he asks him to do it again. And it's written down, here's, here's, what the, here's what the judge said. The judge said, young man, that day when you were a child, that day I was your savior. But today I stand before you as your judge. And I have to rule on what is right. And he orders him to be hanged for murder. James says this of Jesus. The reason I tell this story, James says this in chapter 4, verse 12. There is only one lawgiver and judge, he who is able to save and to destroy. He is speaking here of Jesus. Jesus is the one true lawgiver and judge. It is through him that you find mercy. It is through him that you find condemnation. In fact, he says, in the end, it's not going to be I who condemn you, but it's going to be the words that I have spoken, the truth that I have spoken, that is actually going to condemn you. So I share that story because the New Testament is very clear that just as there are two comings of Jesus into this world, the one difference between them, the situation's the same, the, people, the, the, the way of the world is the same, some ready, some not, some accepting, some not, some going to war. It, it, the situation with us is the same, but the situation with him is a little bit different. See, Christ has both the power to save and destroy. They go hand in hand. When he came the first time, he is the gentle, merciful God who is taking the reins of our life and trying desperately to put us right, to help us grab control of this chaos that's out of control. And as long as we are in this life, as long as this life exists, that is who he is. In fact, John 3, 17, not 16, 17, the one after. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save it through him. Everything that God is doing through Jesus right now is for the salvation of the world. It is to demonstrate and to offer mercy. And all you have to do is accept it. This mercy is free. There are those who will reject that mercy. 
those who do not want a king, those who do not want a lord, those who do not want anyone setting the boundaries or the confines of their life, those who like the chaos of their world. They like the, the rocking wagon and don't want it, any of it set right. When he comes a second time, we're not, we're not going to witness the Jesus who seeks to save at that time. At that moment, salvation is done. There's only one thing left, and that is to destroy. So in Revelation 19, verses 11 to 16, it says this. John says, I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. The one sitting on it is called Faithful and True, and in righteousness he judges and he makes war. His eyes are like a flame of fire. And on his head are many diadems. And he has a name written that no one knows but himself. He is clothed in a robe dipped in blood. And his name by which he is called is the word of God. And the armies of heaven arrayed in fine linen, white and pure, were following him on white horses. And from his mouth comes a sharp sword with which to strike down the nations. And he will rule them with a rod of iron. And he will tread the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh, he has a name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Who is the one that will, uh, 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 who is going to execute the fury of God on earth? It's going to be Jesus, the one who not only has the power to save, but has the duty to condemn. We don't like we don't talk about that. But that is the Jesus that will be coming. The situation in the world is the same. The presentation of the gospel is different. And let me say this because it is not a matter of Jesus looking and saying, you know what, uh, I'm interested in, in, in destroying people and sending people to hell. That, I don't believe that that is our God. Going back to John uh, 3.17, God didn't send Jesus into the world to condemn it. His goal was not condemnation but to save. He made it as easy as possible. All you need to do is turn away from sin. All you have to do is let go of it. Say you don't want it. You don't want to hold on to it because when he comes... He is going to destroy it. Let me say this. That is one thing that is absolutely the same in both situations. Is Christ came to make war the first time as well. This time, though, it was not against you. It was not against the world. It was against sin. He came to destroy the power of sin in your life, in the life of this everyone in this world. He came to destroy wickedness and sin. And he did so by dying on the cross. And if you allow yourself to be washed in his blood, the power of sin is destroyed in you. He is waging war right now, but he does it in mercy. But in that day when he comes, those who have rejected the removal of sin in their life, he will have no choice but to remove them in order to remove sin. He comes to make war. It isn't against people, it is against against sin I, I, I would liken it if this is a long time ago but man if, if you there's a there was the movie with John Kerry called The Mask right and he puts this mask on he would change into these these uh, different characters and give them all kinds of power at the end he's so frustrated with it because what he thought was a blessing was actually a curse that he throws it off of a bridge and it goes down into the waters all the people that had been around him they kind of watch him walk away they kind of eye each other and once he throws it off they jump into the water, water after it I kind of liken the end to that. 
Christ isn't interested in sending people to hell. It's just there's a lot of people going to be jumping in with their sin. They're connected to it. It's who they are. They never allowed it to be removed now. We celebrate Christmas in order to remember that there's a second coming. That we have to ask ourselves the same questions that we would ask of those then. Did they accept the message when it came? Were they waiting? Were they looking? Were they ready? All of these questions that we ask of those, of the stories that we tell, we tell those stories to apply to our life and to apply to our future. Revelation 22, 20. Jesus, he who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Last words of Christ in the Bible. Second to the last verse of the Bible. It's the end. This New Testament, which begins with Christ coming, ends with his promise. Surely I am coming. And what I notice is then John echoes back to Christ and he says this. He says, amen, which means let it be so. But he goes a step further. Come. Lord Jesus. And this morning, those three words hit me because I ask myself, can I say those words with sincerity and honesty? Can I say those words with conviction? Would I even truly dare say those words. And the funny thing is, these words, amen, come Lord Jesus, is echo. Again, Jesus says, I'm coming. And he says, he, uh, John says, amen, come Lord Jesus. Again, this echoes back to kind of the Christmas story, right? Where Gabriel appears to Mary and he says, the Lord's going to come upon you and you are going to be with child. You are going to give birth and, and you're going to name his name Jesus. I mean, he tells them all of this stuff. What is Mary's response? Amen. Let it be done to me as you will. Her response is just like this. When Christ comes, what is our response? Is it like Mary? Is it like John where we say, we welcome your arrival? Look at that first word, come. It's an invitation word. No one comes into my house unless I invite them. No one comes into your house unless you invite them. And most of us probably do not invite people into our house as often as we might like to or as much as we might think we want to. And there's usually a reason. Our houses are pits. I do not invite people over to my house as often as I would like because there's no way I can get my house in order fast enough. It just, it just isn't going to work. I, I, don't, I don't need the judgy looks, and I, I, there would be the judgy looks when someone goes to our restroom and sees the, the dried toothpaste and the cap off of it. Let me, I know it's gross. I know it's disgusting. I just stay out of there because I've seen it too many times, and they never put it on. So I stay. We don't, we, when we invite someone into our life, we only invite them when we're ready. When the house is in order, 
when, when we feel like it's going to be welcoming. We invite people. Because when we invite someone, we know that there are preparations to be made. We have got to clean the house. We, have to have, we need to have food or something to eat prepared. No one, none of us want to have any. We have this, this image that if you invite someone over, you've you got to put food in their mouth. We want to make sure that we, that we have drinks. So when we invite someone over, we're like, what, what, what kind of drinks do you like? So, you know, and we've got to run through and go and get what they like it, because we want to be hospitable. When we invite, when John is saying, come, Lord Jesus, there's a recognition. He's extending an invitation, and there's more to that invitation than just I'm willing to have you over. It's I'm willing to do what it takes to be ready for you. I'm going, when you show up, I'm going to be ready. My house is going to be in order. So when I look at John and I hear him saying, come, Lord Jesus, I mean, I, I know, I know I'm supposed to have that same reaction to him, that you, we're supposed to have that same reaction where we're looking at God and saying, Jesus, come on, we're ready. But most of us, we probably, we probably would do some things different. If we knew he was coming at 6 o'clock, I'm probably going to sit here and sing a couple of extra songs just to make sure. Tell me to get down there and stop preaching. We don't need to hear anymore. He's, he's, he's in six hours. If we haven't got it by now, we're, we're... I think our lives might be... If our lives would be different if we knew that it was imminent, if we knew the time, and it, that would change the way we behaved, the way we acted, the way we talked, the way we spoke, then we're not ready. So, I mean, I want, I want my end to be where I'm, I want my right now to be where I can say, come, I'm ready. No, am I ready? I, I'm looking forward to it. There's a place in my house. There's a place, in my, I'm, it's open. I look at that second word where John says, Lord. Most of us, when we, when we, when we talk about our Savior, we don't normally say Lord. Do you notice that? We, we usually just call him, call him Jesus homeboy, my, my buddy. And that's great. Why does John throw Lord in there? That picture and that image of him writing down King of Kings, Lord of Lords, fire shooting out of his eyes, that, that's not your buddy. That's the king. That's the king showing up. That is, that is uh, royalty incarnate. That is power uh, uh, descending. There needs to be a recognition that while we are friends of God, that Christ calls us friends, in that moment when we stand before him, he is standing as judge. And John is recognizing, Lord, not only, not only is my life ready, or not only is my heart ready that I, I want to invite you, but my, I'm, my life is ready. I have been doing the things that you've asked me to do. just ready in mind, ready in action. And the last one, the last word there, I don't want to belabor this, is the word name Jesus. He doesn't, say, he doesn't just say, come on, judge. He doesn't say, come on, Lord. It's Lord Jesus. It is by that name and that name alone that the 12 and the 72, when they were sent out, cast demons out. It was in the power of that name. It is only by the blood of that name that our sins can be removed from us. 
It is only in and through the authority of that name that we can approach the Father. That we can come to know who God is. That we can be accepted by God. It is only through that name that we are able to have our prayers heard. Which is why we end our prayers with, in the name of Jesus we pray. It is in that name alone that we find hope. It is only in that name that we find peace. It is only in that name that we find purpose. It's only in that name that we find wholeness, completeness. It is in that name that the sick are healed, that the lame walk and the blind see. I look at those words. Christmas season. Every year is a reminder. Are you ready for his arrival? Some were then, some weren't. Some will be now, some won't be. That's not the the question is, are you able to say right now with full conviction, with full assurance, with full sincerity, with full confidence. Jesus says to you, I am coming soon. Are you able this morning to look back and say, come Lord Jesus, we're ready. Because honestly, that's what Christmas is about. He came once, he's coming again. Let's stand. We're going to sing our song of invitation. If there is any need that you have anything burdening your heart, you come up here. If there's any prayer request, a need, celebration, whatever it is, come share it with us this morning. Please let us, let us pray with you. I want to be a person and I want to be a part of a community where we can say with one voice, come, Lord Jesus, we are ready.